The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. As you heard the video announcements, we're doing some changes with bulletins and stuff. Change has not come easy. We recognize this, so we're going to wean you away from inserts next week. You'll see racks in the hallway, and uh, the things that you don't see included in here, you'll find out there. So be looking around. We're going to label it Currents because it has to do with our current events. Uh, we figure we can save anywhere from fifteen dollars to $18,000 per year just by not producing the full-scale inserts and bulletins. So uh, if it becomes too painful, we'll reevaluate for you. But uh, take a look at it. There are many things to do. Baptism, you heard about it. It's a highlight of the calendar year coming up. If you've not been baptized and you've come to know Christ as your Savior, would you prayerfully consider following in steps of obedience to do that? And uh, as you heard in the video, if your young people desire to be baptized, they need to meet with the appropriate pastors. On the flip side of that blue insert, you'll find uh, a call for volunteers. We begin our children's ministry programs next week, uh, opening up the 815 hour for all kiddos through fourth grade and uh, then filling other opportunities. We have been blessed with over 500 kids per week, about 550 kids per week from nursery through fourth grade. It's a privilege for us to shepherd these kids, come alongside parents who are leading them. And so many of you have received for many years. Now it's an opportunity for you to give back. We begin a new series today, Prophets and Kings. You can see the logo in front of you, also in the insert where you can take notes. And uh, to kick that series off is Stephen Chung, our associate pastor here at TBC. Give him a TBC welcome once again. No, no more bulletins, huh? Well, with those kind of monumental changes, I think we should start out here with a word of prayer. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, when we come here to worship you, when we come to hear your word, when we come and take communion, we want to proclaim you as king, as God over all the earth. And we want to to encounter you. We need to encounter you. Because if we're honest, throughout the week, throughout the months and years, the pull of the world is sometimes just so strong. So, Father, we pray that once again you would use this time together to recalibrate us, to refocus us, to reset us, to shift our focus once again, away from ourselves and the world, and back onto you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> yeah, well, as, as Gary says, we're kicking off a new series this morning, and we're going to be looking at the kings, the, uh, you know, King David, King Saul, King Solomon, King Ahab, King Uzziah, Josiah, Hezekiah, and all the other ayahs who ruled over Judah and Israel. And, uh, of course, uh, Israel didn't always have their own king, did they? Sometimes they were ruled over by pagan kings, foreign kings, when they were occupied and exiled or annexed. And so we're going to include in our study over the next few months, we're going to include some of those foreign pagan kings, Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and, of course, finally, the emperor in Rome. And we're going to get very specific Rather than doing this rather broad, general, biographical study of each of the kings, we're going to narrow the focus of our study of the interaction of the kings with the prophets. Every one of the kings we're going to be looking at was at some point in time confronted by at least one prophet about something. didn't matter if you were a good king, like... uh, King, King David, who we're told was the Lord's anointed, who we're told had a heart after God's own heart, was a man after God's own heart. doesn't matter if you're a good king like David or a bad king like Ahab, who we're told only did everything that was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Good king or bad king, godly or godless, every single one of these kings was at some point in time confronted by a prophet. 
So we're not just going to look at Pharaoh, but we're going to look at what happens when Moses confronts Pharaoh. We may not watch David's entire life, but we'll at least watch that moment when the prophet Nathan steps onto the stage of David's life. We may not read everything written about King Jehoiakim, but we'll at least read the words on Jeremiah's prophetic scroll as it reaches the royal throne room of King Jehoiakim. And so we may not hear every word spoken of King Ahab, but we'll at least hear the prophet Elijah's words as they reach King Ahab's ears. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next uh, few weeks and, and months. We're looking at this relationship, this interaction between the kings and the prophets. And it was often a very tense, that's an understatement, a very tense relationship, a tense interaction between those two. Well, that's what we're doing in the coming weeks and months. But what I want to do today is to ask the more general question of how these kings and prophets functioned in their role. How does a royalty rule and how do prophets prophesy? Well, what's going on when some kings seem to be able to hear and understand what a prophet is saying and at other times a prophet's words fall on deaf ears? Those are the more general questions that I want to at least begin to approach uh, this morning. And to help us start think through this stuff, I'd like us to turn to Genesis chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 11. And we're just going to read the first five verses of that. I think, again, for some of you, this will be a very familiar story. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. What do you think of when you, when you think of a city? What do you think of when you think of a city? When I think of a city, I can't help thinking of about London because I grew up right outside London and you could get on a train and in 25 minutes you'd, you'd, you'd be in central London and the moment you step off the train... There's just this energy, there's this uh, buzz that comes off the city. And when I think of London, I think of these, these uh, large green spaces, the parks, which are surrounded by these palaces and museums and, and these churches and cathedrals. And as well as those religious buildings, there's also the government buildings. You know, you've got 10 Downing Street, the cabinet war rooms, the Houses of Parliament. Uh, if you've been, watching the, you've been watching the Olympics the last couple of weeks, yeah. Okay, so they've shown a lot of these scenes, haven't they, uh, in, in between things. And uh, by the way, I'm pretty sure that that stuff is, is stock footage, right? Because there's no way that London has had that many days of sunshine consecutively. There's just no, uh, if you've heard of lousy British summers, it's absolutely true. It doesn't matter that it's August. Um, so uh, when I think of a city, those are some of the things that come to mind. What do you think of when you think of a city? When I think of American cities, there are two cities that spring to mind immediately because they're just so iconic, right? The first one is New York City, right, with, with beautiful central parks surrounded by all of those skyscrapers. We have nothing like that in Europe. Those, those buildings are always pretty awe-inspiring to see. And then, of course, what's the other city that comes to mind? Washington, D.C., right? This is uh, our uh, beloved women's pastor, Beth Mackey. She's there right now. She sent me this photo a couple of days ago. And uh, what was your favorite thing when you went to D.C.? I mean, how many of you have been to D.C.? 
Yeah, wow, ton of you. Okay, so what was your favourite thing when you went to DC? I think my favourite thing was actually to see the White House. Again, because it's so iconic, right? You see it in all the movies, and, and it's, it's on the news all the time. And so just to get to see it in real life, that, that, that was something special. And of course, these cities, DC and uh, New York and London, all these cities like that, uh, tend to be the seat of national power and a source of national pride. And I always think it's a real privilege to be able to get to go and see these kinds, these kinds of, of, of cities. What do you think of when you think of a city? Do you know that one of the last prophetic words in Scripture, one of the last prophetic words in Scripture is actually about a city. You know in the book of Revelation when John has that vision? Right? And, and in that vision, he starts to share what he sees. In that, and in that vision, he sees all these really strange, sometimes odd, sometimes very, very bizarre things. Right? There are dragons and beasts and whores, oh my. And, and there's bowls and scrolls and fiery pits and horsemen and apocalypse and all of this stuff. Right? It's jam-packed with all of these, these very strange and bizarre images, these, these uh, symbols, these metaphors right? that point beyond themselves to something else. But perhaps nothing is as strange, as bizarre, as, as usual, un, unusual, extraordinary as what he sees right at the end of that vision, right at the end of the Bible. Because what John sees is he sees this city coming down out of heaven. And as this city comes down out of heaven, there's something familiar about it. He looks at it and he thinks, well, it's Jerusalem, only it's not Jerusalem. Only it is Jerusalem. It's a new Jerusalem. It would be like seeing D.C. It's so iconic, you'd recognize it anywhere. It's D.C., only it's not D.C., only it... It is D.C. It's a new D.C. So as this new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, he starts to describe its walls, its its streets, the the jewels that encrust this place, the gold. And then he says the most amazing, most unusual thing, this most extraordinary thing. He says that this city doesn't need the sun by day or, or the moon by night because God himself is its light. The glory of the Lord is his light and the Lamb is its lamp. And on no day will its gates ever be shut. They're always perennially, forever, always open. That had to be the strangest, most extraordinary image in the entire book of Revelation. Some of you are thinking, well, no, not really. Because, you know, that city is not really as strange as the beast. Or or, or that city is not really as strange as a seven-headed monster coming up out of the sea which gets one of its heads lopped off and grows another. Actually, I don't know if it happens that way exactly, but something like that, right? There's some really strange stuff in there. The city is not as strange as that stuff. At least not through our eyes, but through the prophet's eyes. Through the prophet's eyes. You see, the prophet was a lot more ambivalent toward the city than you or I might be. For the prophet, Jerusalem, like for us, was a place where, where the palace was. It was the seat of national power. It was where the economy, the hub of their economy, it's where the market was. It's where the temple was. It was the hub of their religious life. It was also a source, like D.C., New York, London. It was a source of national pride as well. And it was all presided over by the king. If you want to think of it this way, the city was the king's domain. The city was the king's domain. But the prophet, the prophet often found themselves, if not literally, at least metaphorically, outside the temple, outside their economy, outside the palace. The prophet often found himself not inside, but outside the city gates. Think of the prophet Elijah. Do you remember the, the, the prophet Elijah, how he, he's on the run, he's exiled from the city, and he's, he's holed up in a cave in a desert somewhere feeling sorry for himself? If you don't know that story, you can read ahead or you know, wait a few weeks. We're going to get to it anyway. And 
And then there's John the Baptist, who, who, who Gary mentioned earlier, is we're taking community. And, and where is he? Pre- is he preaching in the city? No, he, he's preaching in the wilderness. And in order to hear John, you had to leave the city and go out to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist. Which is why uh, Hebrews tells us that these prophets, uh, they faced, that they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Destitute in a hole in the ground. Who wants to be a prophet here this morning? No takers. Okay. You see that the prophets kept a very safe distance from the city, right? They kept, because every time they stepped foot in the city, every time they walked into the palace, every time they strode into the king's throne room, they risked their lives. Hebrews also tells us that some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Which is why Jesus can look at the city. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those sent to you. The prophet was not on the inside, but the outside of the city. Now take another look, a second look at that city coming down out of heaven. That had to be, to the prophet's eyes, right? That had to be the strangest. A city whose gates were always open, like open arms, always welcoming people in. A city whose gates were always open, whose source of light was God himself. That had to be the strangest, most bizarre, most extraordinary image in the entire book of Revelation for the prophet. Through the prophet's eyes. Uh, utterly alien to the prophet's experience. Not just one prophet, but every prophet down through the ages, through the generations, as far back as we can remember. You know, if you, if you, if you go back far enough, right, if, you, if you go back far, and I'm talking about before there were any prophets sent to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm talking actually before there was even any Jerusalem. Right? If, we, if we go way back when, I'm talking Israel's kind of pre-history. History, right? If we go that, that far, there was another city. There was another city, and, and outside this city it is not another, uh, another prophet, but outside this city is God. We're looking at two cities here this morning, the city that is coming down out of heaven. That's why I've called this a tale of two cities, okay? A city that is coming down out of heaven where God is the center of everything, whose gates are never closed, and there's this other city whose walls are high, whose gates are closed, and where God is not. Some of you are familiar with that city, uh, with that story we just read just now. The people of Shina, that is Babylonia, had a united vision. They had this noble cause. They, they didn't want to be split up. They didn't want to be divided as a people. Rather than being scattered over the face of the whole earth, they wanted to live together in one place under one name, speaking one language. And so they set about building this great city. And, and the architects had this wonderful idea of placing a tower right in the center of that city. A, a tower that would reach into their heavens and be seen for miles around, serving as a, as a kind of symbol of unity, perhaps, for the city's inhabitants. Do you always remember what you were thinking and feeling when you, read, when you first read a particular passage of Scripture? Do, do you, I don't always remember that, which is kind of a shame, because when you do, it's kind of neat to see how you've grown and, and changed in your, your understanding of certain passages, right? Funnily enough, I do remember what I was thinking and feeling when I first read that, that story. I, rem- I remember thinking to myself, well, I like what these people are doing. That sounds pretty good. They've got the right idea. And then I remember thinking, when, when you read, read on, right, a few verses later, you read about how God comes down and he confuses their language, right, and he scatters them from there over the face of the whole earth. And the building project comes to this grinding halt. It, it stops. And I remember thinking to myself, what are you doing, God? What, why are you do- well, Surely these people were getting it right. 
I like what they were doing. But you take their story, that story of the Tower of Babel, and you put it in its context. So those early chapters of Genesis, right? Those early chapters of Genesis where God has already told humanity to fill the earth and subdue it, to spread out over the world and, 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 to, and to rule over it. When you read about a group of people who are refusing to be scattered across the globe and are huddling together in one place, building a name by themselves, for themselves, with a tower that will reach into the heavens. There are these kind of Promethean overtones here. When you, what we're really reading about are a group of people who are once again working against the purposes and plans of God. This is a city that has organized itself against God. And God has to come down to see the city, which tells us that God is not in that city. Those are the two images I want you to keep hold of right now, okay, for, for now. It, it is this, city, this image of the prophet outside the city of Jerusalem and this picture of, of, of God who is outside the city of Babel. In his uh, book, The Next Christians, Gabe Lyons describes this scene. He says it was summer in the south. The temperatures were heating up. And the Alabama police braced themselves in the epicenter of the latest media circus. The clash over a 2.6-ton monument of the Ten Commandments in an Alabama courthouse was taking center stage. On one side was Judge Roy Moore, who in his own words installed the monument to depict the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. On the other side, proponents wanting the monument removed. The rallies and rhetoric escalated with each side shouting down the other while national media zoomed in on the battle. For weeks, national Christian radio personalities moved their audiences to see this as the front line of the culture war, to see this as the defining moment. Finally, the decision came down from the court. The monument was declared illegal inside the courthouse and orders were given for its immediate removal. The images saturated television news networks. Protesters were rabid. And as the rock was being pushed on a dolly out the doors of the state building, the news cut to an angry, emotional observer yelling at the top of his lungs, Take your hands off my God! Take your hands off my God! Uh, I think the rage and anger of that man re reflects uh, a certain set of assumptions that many British Christians share with their American brothers and sisters as, as well. I remember some friends coming over to, to London uh, and we, from, from Temple Bible Church and we, and we took them on a, a, a tour uh, of, of London. And, and those of you who've ever been, several of you have been on these tours that I, I take people on, they tend to be a bit of a whirlwind tour, okay? Everything's a bit of a blur. So this is, this is how I do the National Gallery, okay? We walk into the gallery and I'm like, Renoir, Cezanne, Monet, Gibango, okay, out. You know, it's just like two minute, two and a half minutes in there and we're, we're out. So everything's a bit of a blur. So, so we, but we get to the, uh, the Houses of Parliament and, uh, you know, we, people want to stop and look at this and I'm getting a little antsy, ready to, to move on. And, and then uh, uh, around the building, someone notices that, that chiseled in stone around the building are these, these Latin words are, are wrapping itself around the building, chiseled in stone around the Houses of Parliament. And I said, it's okay, I read a bit of Latin. Let me see if I can translate some of that for you. I think the first word is our. I think it says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy... Okay, so I don't, I don't read Latin. But I do know the Lord's Prayer. And that is what is chiseled in stone, in Latin, around the outside of the parliament buildings. Now, as of yet, as of yet, not yet, no, no one has suggested that we chisel that off the face of the building. But it doesn't seem to have made the slightest bit of difference, with or without it, 
the, the fact is, is that the, the, as we've talked about before, the church in England has been marginalized and the culture of the nation has walked further and further away from God, which makes me wonder whether that courthouse scene that I described earlier was the front lines of anything or whether it was really just the dwindling tail end, the, the aftermath of something else that had happened much earlier. You know, I think whenever we've lived in a country like America or, or even in Britain, where we've had this, this kind of rich Judeo-Christian heritage, I think what it breeds in Christians, at least it has in me for, for a long time, is, is this sense of entitlement. This sense of entitlement, this, this idea that, that we should automatically have a seat at the table, that we should automatically be the ones walking the halls of power, calling all the shots, that we should hold the veto card, that we should have the loudest voice and the greatest say. British Christians have struggled with this for years because, because we think us at the center of things, that should be normative. And we forget that God's prophets, they were nearly always outside, outside the city. Perhaps the church over the years, at different times, has lost her prophetic voice because we've collapsed the distinction between church and country, between country and church. So in Britain, things get a little confusing because there's a whole state church thing, but the, the fact of the matter is, there, there is the, the Brit, Britain is not the church, and the church is not Britain. Britain is Britain, and the church is a church, and the church is a church in Britain. In, in America, right? America is not the church, and the church is not America. America is America, and the church is a church in America. We have to take Thomas Jefferson's separation of church and state very, very seriously. Not not so that we can shut up. That's a a really bad misunderstanding of what Jefferson was was concerned about. Not so that we can shut up, but so we can have something to say. Because we love God, and because we love our country, and and seek its well-being, we can't conflate the two. And, And... and perhaps in order for the church to regain her prophetic voice, may, maybe we need to go out, do what the prophets, they always saw themselves outside the city. Maybe we need to go outside the city and join, join Elijah in the desert, join John the Baptist in the wilderness, and maybe even join Christ, who was crucified outside the city gates. You, you know the day when they crucified Christ? You know the day when they nailed Jesus to the cross? I sometimes wonder whether the city of Jerusalem slept better that night than they had done in a very, very long time. You know what we're told? We're told that King Herod, the Jewish King Herod, and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, they became friends that day. Well, the Gospels tell us that they'd been enemies up until that point, but on that day they became friends for the very first time. And we're told that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these warring parties competing for power, uh, together along with the rest of the city, cried out in one voice, in unison, crucify him, crucify him. And for once, Rome did what they wanted and obliged them. And so I wonder whether, whether they slept better that night than they had done in a very long time, because for once, the city was saying, we're all on the same page. They were speaking the same language, saying the same thing at the same time. Sound familiar? Just like Babel, the city was organizing itself once again against God. One of the ways that royalty rules is by controlling language. By controlling language. Jerusalem couldn't hear Jesus any more than Babel could hear God. 
The language was monolithic. It was deafening. It was uniform. And it didn't leave room for alternative speech. Royalty, rulers, pervading ideologies, dominant institutions, societal norms, cultural agendas, whatever you want to call it. You know how these things work best? They work best when they get everyone saying the same thing at the same time in the same way. And when I say everyone, that includes God. Yeah, sometimes we're going to discover that our theology has been hijacked in service of the king, in service of the ruler, in service of the, the cultural agenda, the societal norms, the, the pervading ideolo- prevailing ideologies, the dominant institutions. Pharaoh was all the more powerful because the Egyptian gods sanctioned his throne. Of course, uh, um, King Ahab had the prophets of Baal and the whole Baal cult supporting his throne, and, and the emperor in Rome had the Roman deities too. But perhaps even more sinister than these pagan gods speaking is when God begins to speak, not in his own voice, but in the voice of the culture and society to which we belong and to which we have deep and profound commitments And like a ventriloquist puppet, God begins to say the things that we want him to say. How does this this look? Well, here's an example from from history of where I think I've seen this this happen. You know, there's a place in in London called The City. Can we go there one more time? There's a place in London called The City. It's not referring to the entire city of London. It's just this one square mile in London, uh, which is their financial district. And I remember walking through there with my family and seeing church after church after church. And I was wondering, why are there so many churches here? And I asked my dad, who, who was walking with me, and, and uh, he, he, he used to work there in the city, and, and he'd wondered the same thing as well the, he, when he first got there. Uh, you know, there used to be a hundred churches in that one square mile known as this. Who needs a hundred churches in a square mile? You don't. I mean, there's just something really odd about that. That's strange. There's something up there. And my dad said, look, what, what is it? this is guilt money. This is guilt money. Uh, in other words, uh, these buildings had been put up by massive donations given by extremely wealthy businessmen who had made their fortunes on the backs of slaves, on the slave trade. And by building these buildings, by paying for these, to put these churches up, they felt that this would somehow legitimate themselves, that it would justify their way of doing things. God's on my side. And before you knew it, their language, especially their theological language, was taken captive by the dominant institution of slavery, by the prevailing ideologies in Britain at that time, their own cultural agendas and societal norms and special interests. How do we know if this were happening to us? How do we know if our language, especially our theological language, were being taken captive by our culture? How do we know it was happening? I'm not talking about the obvious stuff, because you can turn on TV, right, and watch CNN, and Fox News, and MSNBC, and it's obvious what the agendas are. You can watch for five minutes and you can figure that out. You don't have to be a genius to figure that out, right? I mean, that's all, these things are obvious, right? Right now, there's a big push in the media, isn't there, to get everyone, including God, to say that two men make a marriage and somehow that's, that's going to make it a fact, Right? That those are all, you're not going to get taken captive for that. You know that. Okay? I'm talking about the stuff that, that, that's hidden, that's, that, that, that can actually take us captive because we're not aware of it, and yet at the same time, paradoxically, have deep and profound commitments to it. You know, it's, it's a little bit like asking a fish what water's like. Right? If a fish could talk, it couldn't really tell you what water's like. But at the same time, it's got a pretty deep commitment to the water. Right? 
Okay, so, so it's these things that we are immersed in, so we don't really notice it, and yet at the same time we're profoundly committed to. I, I want to finish here by giving you three red flags. Okay, those of you who like three-point sermons, here's your three points. Uh, here's three red flags. The first red flag is this, unthinkable. It's this idea that there are certain thoughts which are unthinkable, certain thoughts you can't have, certain unthinkable thoughts. Right? That, um, here, here's how I've seen this work out before. Sometimes when I, well, this, this is a conversation I've had repeatedly on so many different occasions. And the conversation often goes in this, this particular direction. That, that many of us have concerned about where our money is being invested, right? Uh, is it really, we're struggling and wrestling with the idea, is it okay for me to have money invested in stocks and shares in a clothing company which is using and abusing the poor in sweatshops in some factory and they're doing it in an abusive way? Is, is that really okay? Is it really okay for me to retire fat and happy because my money was in stocks and shares in, in, in landmines or us? Is that, is that really okay? Okay, and, and uh, I don't realize these are complex issues. You know, we're, we're entangled in this massive web of sin, and it's very difficult to disentangle ourselves from this. You're going to do better in one area, I might do a bit better in another, and together we can help each other. But you know what the, the, this conversation often meets with? These questions are often met with. On so many occasions, it's met with, well, you can't think about that. Well, I just did think about that. So, so now what? Right, what happens next? I just had those thoughts. The unthinkable thoughts. I've said that before about other stuff. Ah, you can't think about that. You know, whenever I say that, whenever we say that, perhaps what this is a reflection of is some deep and profound commitment to some other agenda that has absolutely nothing to do with God. Second red flag is, is this. Uh, when, we, when our immediate response, and my immediate response to a lot of questions and, and ideas is this, oh, that's impractical. That's not going to work. When our response is always about practicality, pragmatism, viability, we may want to question whether our, uh, our language, especially our theological language, has been taken captive by some other agenda that has nothing to do with God. You know, you know when, when I sit with guys who are addicted to pornography, one of the things I suggest usually is, uh, why don't you cut off your internet connection at home? That, that's uh, obviously something you can't handle right now. I don't have an internet connection at home. Um, and, and not because I've got a problem with it, but I don't want to ever have a problem with it. That's, that's one way of handling it. And my resp- the response is, all, is always met with the same thing. Well, that's impractical. Uh, that's not viable. That's not going to work because I need it for work. I need it for this. I need it for that. It's just not practical. Well, what, what, about the, what about the guys? Uh, what about the way, again, back to the way our money's invested, right? And well, I can't do anything about that because if I pull it out of there, that's my retirement, you know. And, and what happens if everyone did that? What would happen to the economy then? Have you thought about that? Do you think... Do you think that the prophets were concerned about practicality and viability when they walked into Pharaoh, when Moses walked into Pharaoh's throne room? Really, do you think that was on the front of his mind and he backed down when Pharaoh pointed stuff out? Oh, Pharaoh, you, you're right. I hadn't really thought about the fact that the entire Egyptian economy has been built on the backs of slaves, right? And so if we pull them out, the economy is going to collapse. And oh, you're right. You know, politically, that's not viable because if we leave, you're going to look weak. And politically, it's not going to look good for you. So you're right. This isn't practical. Do you, do you think? Do you think that for one moment, right, King uh, King Ahab kind of threw Elijah off guard when when he pointed? Elijah was like, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. But you're right. There are too many people here who are invested emotionally in this cult. The cult of Baal. And if we get it, take it away from them, we're going to have riots on our hands. These people are going to be mad, and we're, we're too much social upheaval. And besides which, part of our economy started to wrap itself around this thing too. So no can do. Right? It's not practical. If, 
when, if our response is always to do with pragmatism, practicality, and viability, we may want to take that as a red flag, but somewhere along the line, our language, especially our theological language, has been taken captive by some other agenda, by the prevailing institutions and dominant ideologies of the day. And the final third red flag is, is this. When, when we find ourselves saying, as I have said so many times, it won't make any difference. What difference can I make? Right? If, if, I, if I do this or I don't do that or I give to this or I don't give to that or if I invest here or I don't invest there, if I, what difference, if I tell people this or I don't tell them that, what, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? And you know what? It could be that you don't make the kind of difference that you want to make, that you would hope to make. To think of the prophets, right? They, they, do you think they, they were some of the biggest failures in the world's eyes, right? Isaiah prophesied, Jeremiah prophesied, Ezekiel prophesied. Do you think anyone was listening? No, Israel went right off the, the edge of that cliff, threw themselves off, headlong. They're the biggest failures. They didn't make a difference. But it, it, seems, it seems that, uh, remember, we're talking about we're talking about people who were destitute and living in holes, right? We're talking about people who were stoned to death and sawn in half. Do you think these people were worried about thinking thoughts that society had deemed within the limits of acceptable thoughts? Do you think these are, these are not people who were worried about practicality and, and what's going to work for the institutions of, of already set in, in place? They weren't even worried about making a difference. Often they knew in advance that they would die without having made a difference. Can you imagine that? What could be more important than making a difference? These people knew in advance sometimes that they would make no difference. What they were concerned about was proclaiming Yahweh, proclaiming the reality of God and the way God will have reality when he is king. For them, Yahweh was a genuine alternative. I want to end here with this uh, quote from Walter Brueggemann's book, The Prophetic Imagination. Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, Israel's prophets did not ask if this freedom, you know, let my people go, free them, if this freedom is realistic or politically practical or economically viable. To begin with such questions is to concede everything to the royal consciousness or the ruling ideology even before we begin. We need to ask not whether it is realistic or practical or viable, but whether it is imaginable. Is it imaginable? We need to ask if our consciousness and imagination have been so assaulted, co-opted by the royal consciousness or ruling ideology that we have been robbed of the courage and power to think an alternative thought. Can we proclaim God, Christ, as a genuine alternative to this world? Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your prophets to proclaim and herald you as king over all the earth. Thank you for sending people to us who were not trapped or captive to the, the cultural agendas and ideologies of their day, whose purpose superseded their own desire to, to seem practical, or even the greater desire that every single one of us has to, to make a difference. Father, renew your church. Make us like those brave, courageous men who dared to speak a different language and to think an alternative thought. May we also boldly herald you as the genuine alternative to the way of this world until you come and take your rightful place as king 
In Jesus' name, amen.